break 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 You're listening to Breakthrough News, and this is The Punch-Out. We're following the news all day so you don't have to, giving you everything you need to know about what's in the headlines and what should be. And yes, we are back here on The Punch-Out, 13th of September, 2021. Very happy to be back with you here and plenty for you here on the show, as we always do. We're going to be talking about House Democrats unveiling their tax plans as it concerns the budget reconciliation bill. We're going to be checking in again on the conflict in Ethiopia, continuing to grind on. But before we get to either of those two very important stories, we want to talk about gangs inside of the L.A. County Sheriff's Department. For years, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department has been shot through with so-called cliques, gang-like structures that often form in various station houses and promote the most aggressive forms of racially biased, brutality-laden policing that have been linked to all sorts of incidents that has cost the county tens of millions of dollars in lawsuits and played out in multiple investigations, including federal ones. It's implicated vast swaths of the top brass at various times in the LASD and also revealed the existence of white supremacist groups inside the sheriff's department. A new internal report obtained by the Los Angeles Times done for the county by the Rand Corporation in 2019 shows that the L.A. sheriff's gang culture is still going strong. The survey revealed two main things. One, the gangs still exist. And two, they are widely tolerated within the department. The survey was given to all 10,000 sworn members of the LASD, but only 1,608 deputies returned the anonymous survey, which in and of itself gives you a sense of how deputies feel about the issue. Of those who responded, 16% said they had been asked to join a gang and only 37% thought they should be prohibited. The LA Times also noted, quote, the study found that there was no coordinated effort among supervisors in the sprawling department to discourage deputies from joining this type of organization, with 28% of those surveyed saying that supervisors do not consider the groups to be problematic, end quote. The Times also details that, quote, in interviews, some of the department were critical of deputies trying too hard to secure an invitation to join a clique, which the study said could lead to misconduct. For example, deputies might use unnecessary force to show how aggressive they are in hopes of receiving an invitation, the study found. Almost a third of those surveyed said deputies and cliques get special privileges at work, end quote. And despite all that, 25% of those responding said they thought the gangs could have a quote-unquote positive effect on deputies. And this, of course, jibes with the long history of ignoring the seriousness of the issue in the LASD. Sheriff Alex Villanueva has claimed on the one hand that there are no gangs, but on the other, it's banned deputies from joining groups that quote-unquote glorify police misconduct. So essentially a backdoor admission that there are indeed gangs. And Villanueva himself has ties to one of these cliques historically, and in his tenure of office, has moved to protect deputies charged with misconduct more aggressively than his predecessors. The truth about these gangs, however, is fairly clear. Just earlier this year, Congresswoman Maxine Waters was moved to call for a federal investigation 
into one of the gangs in the Compton area as news leaked out regarding their activities. The Compton Executioners, hmm, as they are known, have a tattoo members get that depicts an armed skeleton with a Nazi helmet on. Independent media site Knock LA notes, quote, The tattoos are allegedly awarded for killing a civilian and given out at parties. Recruits are reportedly chosen for the gang based on their propensity for violence against members of the community. Black people and women are not allowed to join. Samuel Aldama, a tattooed member of the executioners, testified under oath that he had ill feelings towards African Americans. End quote. The Banditos is another one of these groups. They operate out of the East L.A. Sheriff's Station, whose logo, emblazoned with the slogan Fort Apache, celebrates the police brutality against the 1969 Chicano moratorium anti-war protest. As Knock LA notes, quote, Over the past 30 years, the Banditos alone have cost Los Angeles County taxpayers over $20 million in settlement awards for the wrongful death of civilians who happened to cross their paths, end quote. Those responding to the survey said that the Reaper crew is also active. The Reapers jumped into the news a couple years back when Sheriff Villanueva sought to reverse discipline on one of their members for acts of domestic violence. According to Knock LA, quote, members of the Grim Reapers wear a tattoo on their leg of a black hooded skeleton holding a scythe, resembling the medieval symbol of death. In order to receive the ink, it's alleged that deputies need to participate in the fatal shooting of a civilian, end quote. The RAND study suggests these groups are not only active in general, but are actively recruiting. There's been criticism from the Board of Supervisors, but frankly, almost nothing is really happening to address these issues, which go back to the early 90s in terms of public awareness and back to the 1960s in terms of the existence of these gangs. It's ultimately just more evidence that police brutality is not just a few people here and there. It's pervasive throughout the culture of policing. The war in Ethiopia is grinding on as the essentially one-sided narrative being painted by the Western media that indicts the Ethiopian and Eritrean government, but downplays any and all evidence of war crimes by the insurgent Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, which started the war, continues to play out. The big news now, however, over the past few days is what appears to be a major defeat for the TPLF forces in the Afar region, which neighbors their base in Tigray. The TPLF invaded Afar in a major escalation of the war after the government declared a unilateral ceasefire several months ago. The TPLF seems to have almost totally withdrawn from Afar. The government has stated that they have routed the TPLF. TPLF, of course, says they've just redeployed. But that seems a bit less than believable, especially because they are continuing their other offensive that escalated the conflict, and that's in the Anhamhara region, which is just to the south of Tigray. It's worth noting that a September 9th report from the United Nations, just before the TPLF retreat on the humanitarian situation in Ethiopia, noted, quote, the spillover of the conflict into Gray, into Amhara and Afar is dramatically increasing humanitarian needs across the three regions at a moment where aid workers are already facing enormous challenges to sustain relief operations, end quote. So interestingly enough here, the TPLF, despite being widely portrayed as the good guys in the conflict, are responsible for dramatically increasing humanitarian needs something that's only noted at best, if at all, as a footnote in much of the discussion of the conflict. That being said, the odd fact has leaked out here or there that has questioned some elements of the overall narrative, even the mainstream media, including an indiscreet moment from a USAID official noting that the TPLF had ransacked aid warehouses run by that organization, and the now regular tweets from the World Food Program about the arrival of aid into Gray. 
Not that they've been saying it's all good, but the point stands. The idea of a total aid blockade on Tigray by the Ethiopian government is now clearly incorrect, despite the fact it's still widely cited by many in the international media as essentially a fact. And the issue of war crimes on either side continues to be at the forefront of the discussion. And in fact, today, the UN Human Rights Commission is announcing the end of its joint investigation with the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission. And their full report will be out in early November, it seems. But the overall situation on this issue has not really changed either. There are plenty of allegations against both sides, credible ones for sure, but only those alleged against Ethiopia or Eritrea get major play no matter how much evidence there is about TPLF crimes. Also, it's worth noting, as I have for months now, that the government agency that is the Ethiopian Human Rights Commission has actually been discussing both sides of the conflict And the Ethiopian government has indeed admitted certain things and even tried soldiers for certain crimes. Yet somehow, Ethiopia and Eritrea are never given even the slightest benefit of the doubt or allowed to have any complexity told in their stories at all. The TPLF has completely denied everything alleged against them, no matter how well documented, and yet somehow is given the total benefit of the doubt, really even beyond the benefit of the doubt. Just several weeks ago, the New York Times stated that the Ethiopian government started the war, even though the TPLF not only started the war, but openly admits they started the war. And it's these sorts of distortions that are at the root of why this conflict is very difficult to resolve, because there's no international pressure rebounding on the TPLF to negotiate in good faith. The conflict seems set to just grind on because this essentially means that there's only a military solution to the conflict, which is a tragedy for the Horn of Africa. But without a more fact-based presentation about the TPLF and what they're doing and what they have done when they ruled Ethiopia for 30 years, it seems unlikely that there will be the type of pressure created for there to be a real negotiated settlement. Actions have consequences. In this case, the totally one-sided narrative about the TPLF and their forces is now resulting in even more prolonged humanitarian suffering across the region. House Democrats have unveiled their proposals on how to increase taxes to pay for things like universal child care, expanding health care for millions of people, free community college, paid family leave, and 80% clean energy by 2030 as a part of their broader $3.5 trillion budget bill supposed to be passed this month. House Democrats would raise the top tax rate on individuals from 37% to 39%. That's where it was just a few years ago. They would raise the capital gains tax from 20% to 28.3% and add a 3% income tax onto everyone making over $5 million a year. They'd also crack down on tax loopholes and raise the corporate tax rate from 21% to 25%. They also plan to foist some of the cost of the bill onto Big Pharma by requiring them to negotiate prices with Medicare, which will lower the cost of the bill. All that being said, that only raises $2.9 trillion of the $3.5 trillion. So the question becomes, how is the rest going to be covered? And that's where the rubber meets the road. Over the course of the various Sunday shows yesterday, various Democrats took various positions on whether or not the bill is going to be watered down or not. But Joe Manchin in the Senate and Jim Clyburn in the House are looking to get nearly $2 trillion cut from the bill. Dozens and dozens of Democrats have already said that's unacceptable, and clearly there's going to be a fight over this. Senator Ron Wyden is preparing tax language in his chamber's version of the bill that aims to put a new tax on wealth that will allow the government to capture assets that are not sold but balloon in value. This is actually a huge tax dodge, one of the biggest ones used by the ultra-rich. They gain huge amounts of wealth in stock and assets, but rather than sell them and pay taxes, borrow from banks against this paper wealth. 
So they can then spend their money without being taxed. Wyden is proposing to put something like a property tax on these assets, which would be enough to certainly cover the difference between what the House Democrats are proposing. So expect a lot of back and forth this week with a lot of numbers, $3.5 trillion, $2.9 trillion, $2 trillion, $1.3 trillion, whatever. It's going to be a lot of numbers. But don't forget what it's really about. It's about things like whether the 30 million odd workers without access to one paid sick day at all will get a legal day off, or whether ultra-rich people and highly profitable corporations will be allowed to avoid any change to the status quo. Whatever can be said about the bill itself, it's important to keep it in perspective. The drive against the bill is a big business billionaire effort to push back against the idea that the ultra-rich owe anything to society, to set the tone that nothing can or should be done for working and poor people unless it passes the veto of the ultra-rich billionaires first. That's the punch out for today. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. here in New York East Coast Standard Time, 2 p.m. in Los Angeles Pacific Standard Time, and 9 p.m. GMT. And of course, you can support everything we do here at Breakthrough News at patreon.com slash breakthrough news. It's your patronage that keeps all of our offerings here at Breakthrough News moving forward. And of course, you can check us out across all your social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, at BT Newsroom. 